0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to my podcast. My name is Samuel Perez, and just a little bit about myself, I am a former gay stripper. Yes, that's right, you heard that correctly. I left behind the homosexual lifestyle to walk with Christ, and this podcast is all about how I do it, why I do it, and to help others like me and educate those that maybe are not like me. I want to talk, but I really want to talk about what a real life with Jesus looks like in 2022. Nothing is off limits and I want to be as transparent as I possibly can be. Now before we get started, I want to let everybody know that this podcast is completely free to listen and we do accept donations. And we have some awesome rewards and gifts for those who want to become patrons of the podcast. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Podbean, click on the description and you'll find the link to becoming a patron of the podcast, which means you'll be making a regular monthly commitment and that comes with all types of gifts and merch and all that stuff. We also have my website where you can find resources to give through PayPal, Venmo, or Cash App. Uh, And that's SamuelAbrahamPerez.com. And on today's episode, we have the incredible Gregory Coles. He is the author of two books, one one of which is called Single Gate Christian and the other No Longer Strangers.
1: How are you doing today, Gregory? (laughs) Oh, I'm doing well. Call me Greg, by the way. Gregory sounds very papal to me and nothing against the popes. I'm just not one of them. (laughs) Uh, but I'm doing great. A pleasure, a pleasure to be chatting with you today, Samuel. I think actually you're like the first
0: Greg that I've ever met.
1: Are you serious? Oh, what a delight to to inhabit that space in your heart and mind.
0: Yeah, yeah, I definitely like I think that's uh. there's no, I don't I don't think I've ever met any other Greg before. That's not like really a, <laughs> uh, a very popular name, especially in Miami. I'd, I'd, where are you from?
1: Oh from is such a fluid concept. I uh I was born in New York, grew up in Indonesia, uh, went to college in New York, went to grad school in Pennsylvania, and now I live in Idaho. So, you know, just kind of a smorgasbord.
0: <laughs> just just a little bit of everything, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing crazy. All right, so we do start off our pro- our podcast with uh just a couple of really random questions and something I've been doing lately. So, what is your favorite pizza topping, Greg?
1: <laughs> oh, Pesto. Pesto? I've never had that. <laughs> You've never had pesto on pizza? Oh, my gosh. It is, it, it will change your life. It is just gustatory delight.
0: I've definitely had a spaghetti with pesto sauce, and that is really good. Ooh. So, yeah, I believe Also me. excellent. Okay, question number two. What aroma or smell makes you feel alive? This one's a tough one, for sure.
1: Makes me feel alive. Uh, I love the smell of things baking. Uh, we'll go with baking bread. <laughs> baking bread. Is there a candle for that? <laughs> thought, thought, you know, there should be. Um, my, my understanding is that the smell of baking bread is made by the release of the alcohol from the fermentation process. Mm. So maybe there's some way that they could like encapsulate bits of like yeasted alcohol into a candle that could slowly release as it burns. But I have not yet encountered a candle with that scent. If you find one, I'll expect you to send it to me as like a thank you gift for being on the podcast. <laughs> Baking bread. I
0: absolutely have to have that. I mean, I feel like they make candles for everything nowadays. You know, we had Gwyneth Paltrow and she made a candle of something I don't even want to get into. All right. So have you ever heard someone on purpose? If so, why?
1: Heard some, I, I thought you said heard someone on purpose. And I was like, I hear people on purpose all the time. Uh, <laughs> have I heard someone on purpose? Uh, you know, I remember this one time, I think I might have been middle schoolish age um and uh my best friend's younger sister uh had been sitting in a chair and had stood up and for no particular reason i was not like the sort of person who normally did this i just thought it would be funny to like yank her chair back um and then she like sat down and there was no chair uh i don't think she was devastatingly hurt but like as soon as i did it i felt so terrible and i was like why did i do that um Uh, That's the only time that I remember having done something (laughs) intentionally, I guess, though again, I'm not exactly sure what was going through my brain, um, that like physically hurt someone. Uh, I'm sure that I've emotionally hurt people in a variety, but if we started going into the time (laughs) that I've emotionally hurt people, we would be here way too long.
0: The intrusive thoughts uh, won that day. All right. So what is your favorite thing about nature? One thing about nature that you really like? I love that it is large and out of control and makes me feel small wow that's really good you know one thing i personally really like is we don't get seasons in miami and so whenever no it's true like it's just green all the time it... oh, i believe you i mean i grew up in indonesia we we got rainy
1: season for six months and dry season for six months so i'm
0: yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but i love like uh like autumn i think that's what they call it yeah i, I don't even know what it's called because we don't have that here and so I love the, seeing the trees turn brown and, and orange and all that stuff. I, I, it's so beautiful to me. I never get to see that. Um, so how do you feel about
1: guys wearing pink? This is the last question. Uh, I'm generally in savor. I, <laughs> I think all the colors were created by God and all the colors have the capacity to reflect something good and beautiful and true in the world. So if bringing pink floats your boat, bring it on. That's actually
0: my favorite color is pink.
1: <laughs> is it really? Oh, well, I'm glad I didn't come out strong against it. Cause that's yeah, can you imagine? I'm to start this conversation. That's why I have like, for those of you guys who are not
0: seeing this on YouTube, I have like pink behind me. I have pink like reflected on me. And I love wearing pink. It's one of the, like my, my favorite colors. So um, I'm glad the position that you took was favorable. <laughs> um, so tell me, okay, Greg you wrote these two books but i want to get to know a little bit about you and how you came to christ so let's start off kind of maybe with your childhood or you know how you grew up and and then ultimately like, how did you meet jesus like what was your experience like that
1: yeah for sure uh so i'll start interrupt me at will by all means okay uh, for sure <laughs> uh yeah so uh so i was uh born in upstate new york uh like very upstate new york like so upstate that you're basically in canada like just south of the border um my dad was a pastor at the time Mm. but then when i was relatively young uh my family decided you know we should we should move to indonesia we feel like god is calling us to indonesia so uh we moved to indonesia when i was three years old my dad taught english and um and so that that was my life growing up. I uh, lived in Bandung, Indonesia, which is on the island of Java. It is the third, second, third largest, uh, third most populous city in Indonesia. Um, and yeah, I lived there for 15 years from age three to age 18. Um, so uh, uh, some things that that met for my faith life. One was, I mean, I, I grew up in a family, not just where we talked about God, but a family where I was very aware that everything, including the fact, like the fact of the nation I lived in was informed by like this was a thing that we sensed God was calling us to do. So I grew up with this sense that like, yeah, like God tells you to do things that now up to shape and inform the entirety of the way you live your life. And so that was mm. that was kind of a, a given for me, I think, from a pretty young age. Um, another thing that I think I knew from a pretty young age was that there was a kind of fragility in the world. Indonesia was a pretty politically tumultuous place while I was growing up. We had our first, and by we, I mean Indonesia, uh, had our first uh, fully democratic election in 1999. So I was nine years old at that point. Uh, And before that, we were kind of on the tail end of our second, uh, I'm trying to think of a nice way of describing him. a, a somewhat totalitarian leader who sought to be totalitarian in a gentle way, but he wasn't terribly well-loved. Anyway, he was in charge. Uh, his name was Suhato. Uh He was in charge when I was young, and then there was a lot of political upheaval. Um, there were tons of riots. Uh, in some cities, there were, you know, Lord. dying by the hundreds or thousands. Uh, were you guys okay? Was your family okay during that time? Yeah, I mean, there were there were seasons of, of my growing up years uh, when— I would keep a shelf packed in my closet um, and it was the if we need to leave the country with 24 hours notice shelf um, oh. so I would just have like yep here's all the stuff I'll shove into a backpack if I have five minutes to pack um, yeah I mean we were we were fine we were safe but also uh, there were you know riots going on in, in the streets in our city I remember one time I, my two older brothers went out to play basketball and they got home like three hours later than they were supposed to and they were like sorry we got stuck in a riot, and people were throwing rocks, so we had to hide behind a car. But like everybody was really nice on both sides; like the police were nice to us, and the rioters were nice to us. So that's great. Uh, but it was just that—that that was sort of the—that was the—that was the environment. Um, uh, and then a little later, after uh, September 11th in 2001, um, then, well, less after September 11th itself, more after the United States invaded Afghanistan um Mm. then there was some anti-american sentiment uh and so that also you know there were Mm. rumors going around about people who might try to drive all the americans out of indonesia so so that again you know it it, uh it created in me a sense that i wasn't quite sure how life was going to play out uh so the general notion that my life would just sort of be comfortable and stable i'm not sure i had that as a base expectation when i was a kid Uh, and that's kind of needed as
0: a kid right (laughs) like some sort of level of uh, comfort and stability.
1: <laughs> I think I think what I decided was I need some kind of sense of comfort and stability from somewhere, and I'm certainly not putting my comfort and stability in the political scene that surrounds me, um, nor do I necessarily feel convinced that this house or this country that I'm living in will be mine forever, um, but I need something stable. And, and so uh, that, I think, drove me from a pretty young age to feel like, I think I need to figure out who God is, who this Jesus guy is. I need to make sure that my eternal destiny is set so that I'll be, you know, so that I can have some kind of stability to cling to. Um, And so there was probably uh, in, in the early years of my encounter with Jesus, there was probably kind of a a fire insurance mentality. If you've heard that expression, the people who were like, I'm interested in Jesus basically just to make sure I don't go to hell. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good to me. I don't want to go to hell. Let's, Let's make sure we've got things sorted out with Jesus. Uh, yeah,
0: that's definitely and... me as well. <laughs> Growing up in church.
1: Yeah, and and uh, I mean, I, I continue to be grateful for uh, the ways that that drew me to the person of Jesus. Um, I'd like to think that my understanding of who Jesus is and why it matters to follow him has sort of evolved and matured over the years um, so that that's not the totality of my understanding of my faith now. But- um, that was part of what got me going is the sense that, yeah the, the world is kind of out of control, but this Jesus guy is offering me something that that's really good, something that's really stable, uh, and that feels like an exchange worth making so so that was that that was the early the early sort of grounding process for me um and I could, yeah, I mean, I could point to a particular moment when I was seven years old and saying to my dad like, okay, I want to pray right now and make sure you know we could talk about that moment, but really it was sort of It was sort of years of the ongoing experience of being like, let me figure out what it looks like to to live into this thing. Um, Of course, this this all gets, for me, somewhat more complicated when I hit puberty, uh, because in puberty, then I discover uh, that I am not attracted to the opposite sex, that I'm attracted to the same sex, and I didn't really have a category for that experience, uh, because I had... To the degree I had heard anything about sexuality prior to that, the thing I'd heard was, you know, like maybe once in a while in youth group they'd get they'd like split the boys and the girls up, and they'd be like, "Look, boys, we know what you're going through. You want to look at pictures of naked women, but don't do it." You know, and 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 so I was like, I am remarkably good at not looking at pictures of naked women. Like I I was feeling so good about myself. I was like, I think I might be the holiest twelve-year-old in the world. Um, uh, So. Uh, yeah, it, it took me a little while to realize, like, oh, I do actually have an experience of sexuality. It's just not this one that I've been trained for and braced for. Um, and so that that caused me to go from feeling like the holiest 12-year-old in the world to feeling like somehow the worst possible 12-year-old in the world, the one who was so awful that nobody bothered warn me that I could exist.
0: Uh, Did you have any sort of feelings... Um, for for boys your age during that time any like experimental strong interest at all or maybe just curiosities of not understanding boys your age
1: yeah you know i think um the the experience for me was much less much less relationally tied to individual people that i knew and much more tied to things like uh like books and images that i would see and uh, I remember, for instance, uh, reading uh, something by Mark Twain. Oh, Huckleberry Finn, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Um, uh, and I, I remember uh, reading the the. There's a there's a moment in that book where I think uh, Huck and what's his name, Jim, maybe, um, a, are, I, um, I I wouldn't know. I don't read. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'll, we'll just assume his name is Jim for the purposes of the current the current story. Uh, and there's this part of the story where they're like, it's just the two of them on a raft for, for a long time. Um, uh, and I think the narrator says something like, uh, we was always naked whenever the mosquitoes would let us uh, because it was so hot and I don't hold my clothes know how. Um, and, uh, or something like that. Again, apologies to Mark Twain for misrepresenting uh, his his work. But, but I remember reading that and, and being like, the idea of being like oh why does that make me feel sort of like excited the idea of like oh i could be naked with like another guy like that seems really i, I didn't the structure of my life was such that that wasn't really a thing that was that was happening nor was i looking at particular people i knew and being like let's get naked um but i remember it was more the the idea of it um and yeah and so i think i think over time and i had trouble figuring out uh, and I think puberty is just very confusing in general, um, right? Like, any time I'm talking to a young person and they're like, I'm trying to figure out my experience of sexuality, I'm like, that's good, and you'll be loved no matter where you land. But also, like, maybe don't rush to decide right at this exact moment what you're, you know, because puberty is just wildly confusing for all of us, and I think that's okay. Um, so it was probably hard for me at that point in my life to discern how much of this... Uh, is just, like, normal curiosity, because curiosity is normal. Um, And to what degree does it reflect something other than, you know, the curiosity that the average heterosexual male child would experience in puberty? Uh, So, yeah, uh, over time, it, it became clearer that we had moved beyond normal curiosity among heterosexual boys into something else altogether. Uh, and so that sort of sparked the need to then do some further wrestling with what that meant for my life yeah that's super interesting um that you mentioned all
0: that uh was there any type of experimentation that you did during maybe those teenage years uh did like for me i kind of came out of the closet to my mom and and dad Uh, i think i was in eighth grade and uh, i had to like tell them what was happening um, because I was getting interested in a friend that I had in, in middle school. And um, and, I, and I was like, you know, it's gonna come out eventually, you might as well tell them. But uh, did you have any type of those experiences where you got close to another male or you were figuring that out or was that something that you just abstained from?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the, the, the things that I was, the things that I was dealing with at that point in my life were eventually beginning to seek out uh, gay pornography um, you know, it, uh, experimenting with masturbation—that was that was kind of the realm that I was uh, dealing with as far as uh, my own my own wrestling with my capacity for sinfulness. Um, I it was almost as if it never occurred to me to to move out of the realm of my own conceptual life into like uh, engaging with other people. That that just never crossed my mind. It felt so far outside of the sphere of the world that I lived in. Um, but uh, again, maybe there was some of the, some of the, the grace of God in that too. Um, though I, you know, certainly the grace of God can also be evident in stories that are very much unlike mine, stories like yours. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. God can be alive. And like so many hookups and stuff. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, did they, like, this is so, such an ignorant question, but did they have like gay pornography in Indonesia? Like, is that, is that where you first discovered that? Or was that, when did you get back to the States at what age? You said it was 18,
1: 17, uh, 18. I came back to the States for college. Um, Uh and yeah, my parents still lived in Indonesia at that point. So, um, we, I had three older siblings and we were all three years apart. Well, I still have them. We're still all three years apart. Um, but when I was growing up, we would come back to the States for burlo once every three years. And so we would just like leave somebody in college every time. So when I turned 18, it was my turn to, you know, get left in the States for college. Um, so when I was in Indonesia, I know my, my encounter with pornography was through the internet. Um, uh, I think it was, uh, the, I mean, the infant was relatively young in those days, right? Like Al Gore had just invented the internet. Um. And uh, uh, and I yeah I remember it was it was before the days of like the reign of Google um, so I think there was this obscure search engine called MetaCrawler um, and I remember being like I don't think anybody else on this family computer uses MetaCrawler so like if I go to MetaCrawler I'm not sure I knew how to erase search histories but I was like very paranoid all the same um, so I'd like go to MetaCrawler and then and and that was where I think I Uh, that was where I encountered pornography, uh, for the first time, I think. Wow. That's hilarious. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I think like, uh, first time I ever, I talked about this before on another, uh, podcast. First time I ever encountered it was actually through a friend in school. Um, and they seem to know it more because growing up like in a Christian household, that's not something that, you know, you're super exposed to is like any type of sexual acts. But, um, tell me a little bit like just about growing up with pastors as parents. Was that something that was, um, good for you? Like, is this something that you're like, Oh man, I wish kind of like my parents weren't pastors. Cause you know, like there's like horror stories of like, I grew up in the ministry or some of uh, that kind of effect. But how do you think that kind of affected your, your childhood? And did that uh, affect your sexuality at all either as well?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, mm-hmm. had a really good experience overall growing up. Um, I think I, I felt a lot of freedom in, in the, in the context that I was in, um, to, to be myself. I I know some, some kids whose parents do ministry things, they feel a lot of pressure to like perform in certain ways to make their parents look good. Uh, And I think my parents were really thoughtful about not applying that, that pressure to me particularly, though I was also just a really like, I was kind of a doobie to begin with. So like they probably, you know, had they wanted to apply the pressure, I'm not sure they would have needed to apply very much. Um. I was already a pretty straight-laced kid. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think in general, I loved the fact that their uh, their sort of proximity to uh, ministry work meant that I got to hang out with a lot of really cool people who really seemed to love Jesus, and, uh, who modeled really well what it looked like to take the Bible seriously and to try to follow Jesus in ways that were interesting and radical. Um uh, I, I I think as to how that growing up context impacted the way I processed my sexuality, um, I, I think I I remember feeling fairly early on um, through not not through the faults of my parents or necessarily through the faults of anybody in my Christian community, but I was very aware that um, the the primary narrative that existed around LGBTq experiences in the community that I was in was very much sort of the ex-gay narrative, the like, well, maybe you have that experience, but then Jesus fixes you and then you so um, and you know, and I'd like I'd like heard those testimonies of people being like, and then I was healed and I just wanted to lust after women instead, and then I got married and we had four children of you know, um, and I was like, oh, I think that's the kind of testimony I'm supposed to have. So I very strategically was like, Okay, so I'm gonna pray, and then I'm just gonna wait until I become straight, and then when I give my testimony, I'll give one of those like epic ex-gay testimonies, you know, and be like, "I used to be so gay, you know, I used to be watching the gay pornography, but look at me now, look at my wife and kids." Like that was the plan. I was so here for it. Um, and so I think, uh, I think uh, uh, that was that was the initial reason for me not not sharing that experience with anybody cuz i was i was not out at all. I mean, i sort of accidentally came out to uh one of my brothers once when i was in like 7th grade um uh, and he didn't really know what to do about it and i didn't really know what to do about it and we were like, "Okay, well that's confusing." Uh and I remember like a week or two later uh he was like, "Hey, how's it going with like, you know, that?" you know, and i was like, "Uh I think it's getting better." Yeah, yeah, it's definitely getting a little better. Uh, you know, and I was like, I, like if I think about it, maybe I can persuade myself. Uh, and after that, I, we didn't really talk about it again. I, I don't know if it was because he didn't bring it up or because he would try to bring it up, and I would, like, see he was bringing it up and, like, strategically change the subject so, so he wouldn't. I just remember really, really not wanting to talk about it. Um, and only wanting to name, yeah, n- wanting to wait to name that reality until I could name it. Uh, In the historic sense and be like, ah, that's what I used to. That's what I used to experience before I evolved into the wonderfully buttoned up follower of Jesus that I am today. Um, Let the reader understand I'm not a wonderfully buttoned up follower of Jesus. (laughs) Lord, we're trying. Yeah, definitely.
0: I, I think, you know, because it comes with just all of those uh, shame and guilt of just like, oh, I I know I'm going to be looked down upon if I don't fix this or if I don't get this in, in, in the right place of where it needs to be because people have a perception of of how this needs to be uh, or if this is not fixed in some type of way, then I'm not a true Christian or I need a sure. deliverance or I need this. And definitely those ex-gay uh, testimonies really affected me. I think uh, sometimes I classify myself sort of as ex-gay, but not really. I don't like labels. I think it's just kind of the best way to kind of say, I once was really identifying with one, um, like I, I was I once was really identifying identifying with one way, and now I'm identifying with a different way. So the best way you can say that, I guess, is like an X or something, you know, or, or whatever way you mm-hmm. can say that. Um, I, I think the only label I like to take on personally is uh, a child of God. <laughs> That's like the only label, because it reminds me that I'm a part of a family and, and I'm so much more than the things that I'm experiencing in the world. But um, yeah. How you know? I heard in another one of your podcasts you were talking kind of just like this argument of uh, nature versus nurture, and just how someone comes into the the feelings of of attraction, like why th- that that kind of takes place. Um, I've I've heard a couple of different people talk about uh, and how you were just kind of like it doesn't really matter to me. I, you, you said it was like a, a a mixture of both. Um, but for you personally, um, is there any like do you feel like you have any insight as to like uh, why maybe those attractions have come to your life are those in uh, that strong interest was a lack of anything personally for me um which is you know I'm glad I've been able to do kind of just a little bit of of, of, like research of myself and um and analyze uh like when was the beginning of this and and what was it that I was in lack of? Or, you know, and some people have so different stories. That's why I say it's for me. Uh, some people have been abused. Some people, are, it's it's a lack of a fatherhood. Some people it's just like, you know, something in nature. and something in their DNA, you know. Um, but for me, it was, you know, definitely uh, a lack of male figures in my life. And, and mm-hmm. for my dad, just not being around super, um, not being able to connect with him very much. And so always wanting just like that male affirmation. Uh, would you say it's the same for you or have you been able to do any of that kind of thoughts behind, um, any of that origin? And, uh, and I bring that up just cause only do you think it's helpful, uh, to kind of think about those types of things and to deliver that unto God?
1: Yeah. Yeah. What do you, let me offer a couple of thoughts. Um, uh, so in terms of sort of the, the, the nature and nurture conversation, um, There's certainly, uh, there, there's kind of interesting scientific studies on, on both sides that seem to suggest, okay, we can't totally just be like, it's all nature, you just come out of the womb and, you know, and we also can't say like, it's just nurture, there's no, um, so the, the two easy examples on either side, um, one is identical twin studies, so you can have identical twins who have identical genetic makeup, um, who look pretty much the same, you know, so in many ways, uh, you know, so the sort of the cards they're dealt, biologically speaking, are pretty much the same, Um, but uh, we know that they don't always grow up to have the same experience of sexuality, which then, you know, raises question, okay, so what is it that's sort of not not, uh, recognized by uh, the similarity of uh, twins? But then on the other side, there's really fascinating studies that demonstrate that the more biological sons a mother gives birth to, the more likely the subsequent sons are to be gay. Um, so for instance, uh, I'm the youngest of four kids, uh, two of my older siblings are brothers, um, which means, and I happen to be the only the only one of the four of us who's gay, and there is just a statistical likelihood that I am more likely to be gay, simply by virtue of the fact that my mom had already given birth to two other boys before she gave birth to me. Um, uh, and, yeah, so sometimes when I'm in a really spicy mood, I like to joke to my brothers that it's their fault that I'm gay. The more fundamental question that you're asking, I think, is, um, yeah, does it does it matter, and, and can we know, and should we know? And, uh, yeah, how how much fruitfulness is there in us asking questions about what, what seems to exist at the root of our experience? Um, and I think a, a couple things feel significant to me in that. Uh, one is... Um, I think it's both valuable to give people space to process real hurt in their lives and also valuable to not thrust them into narratives that try to force them to find hurt where there's no hurt. Um, right. So, for instance, in your story, I hear you say, I feel like I had an absence of like, you know, male figures speaking into my life. And I'm like, yeah, like, regardless of what that has to do with your experience of sexuality, I think it's important for you to be able to name that in your past and say, like, how do I heal through that? You know, how, uh, regardless of whether healing through that has some effect on your experience of sexual attraction, like, what does it look like to sort of reckon with my past to bring it before Jesus? Um, so I think there's value in naming those things. Um, but then simultaneously, for somebody like like me, who, like, I, I had a great experience with my dad, and I, yeah, I, and I had, you know, great experiences with my older brothers, and I didn't feel there, there was some deficit of um, older male influence in my life. Um, and so I would hate uh I would hate for the idea that, like, oh, yeah, that's what lies at the root for people to then look at my life and be like, look, Greg, you have to like read that trauma into your experience. Like, you should go blame your dad for being a bad dad because it's his fault, you know. Um, uh, And the other thing, the other thing that I I think seems fruitful to me as we think about these questions of where does our experience of uh, attraction or sexuality come from? uh, the, The question is, what opportunity do we have to see the way that God is at work in our experience? Um, and And by the way that God is at work in our experience, uh, i'm I'm not necessarily saying that like God made me gay, for instance, uh, right? Because I think you know god God can ordain and allow all kinds of things to happen in the world, and I'm not blaming God for all of those things happening in the world. Um, and yet, in my own experience, when i when I ask the question, uh, how has my experience of sexuality provided opportunity for God to work in my life? One thing that I recognize is that I think had I, had I been attracted to the opposite sex in the way that I expected I would be, I'm very, very confident that I would have gotten married. Um, and I think that marriage is a really wonderful and beautiful gift for those who are called into it. But I'm also really convinced biblically that singleness is this really good and beautiful thing that followers of Jesus can be called to. And now that I've spent a while in singleness, I'm beginning to see some of the ways in which my singleness is perhaps actually a better, uh, a, a more fruitful use and application of my, my gifting and calling in the world. Um, and so I can see as I look at my life, the way in which my experience of sexuality actually became a tool that God used to clarify to me, my sense of calling to singleness. Um, And so I can, I can celebrate it in, in that way. Um, I I can celebrate the reality that the the kind of experience I've had has been something that God has used to point me uh, so clearly towards singleness. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a, it's a thing that seemed relevant to say.
0: (laughs) It's definitely helpful for sure. (laughs) Um, okay. So you went back to, to, to college in New York. Um, uh, I remember hearing, uh, like a story about a tsunami of how you just had like a, a moment of spiritual awareness. Um, can you tell like the viewers a story about the tsunami that, that you almost experienced? Um, and was that kind of like the, the point in your life where there was an explosion or a really a want to follow God 100% or was that always there before that point in your life? Like, kind of finish up the rest of your testimony i guess i would say (laughs) i'm really interested
1: yeah so so the the tsunami story is as follows uh in i believe it was 2006 um i had i had a best friend named zach who uh i'd grown up with and then when we were at eighth grade zach moved back zach's family moved back he didn't move back by himself he and his family moved back to the states um which meant that I no longer saw him regularly, which was a major bummer in my life, and I was very, very sad that he left. But then he came back to visit uh, The uh, whenever it was in 2006. I think it might have been the summer. I would have to go back and check my date. Um, But while he was there visiting, um, we made plans to go to a coastal town called Pangandaran, which was um, a beach town that we had gone to a lot growing up and, you know, a place where, you know, we'd hung out a bunch and, our families and other families that we loved hanging out—it was just like a place that we loved to be. And so while Zach was visiting, we made this plan, and we were like, "We're going to go to Navan," and like Zach's dad was going to take us there. And then um, shortly before we left to go to the uh, to go to that town, um, Zach got sick. With some kind of uh, mysterious disease, I don't remember if he ever got tested. It may have been dengue fever or possibly chikungunya, both of which are perhaps diseases that you have never heard of, but they are diseases that we were familiar with in Indonesia. Uh, so whatever he had, uh, dengue, chikungunya, who knows? Um, uh, it was it was bad enough that we had to cancel our trip to Pantata. Um and uh, yeah, so so I remember you know being really. Being really bummed that the trip was canceled, and um, I was with some people and we were playing speed scrabble together. Um, and it was the afternoon that like Zach and I were supposed to have gone to the beach that morning. Like we should have been like out on the beach in the waves this afternoon as we were, you know, playing speed scrabble in somebody's living room instead. Um, and we, and we got we all got this text that said, uh, "Please pray," um, uh, without. Uh, any other, any other details. Um, And then as the details began to come in, uh, we learned that there had been pretty major tsunami um, that hit precisely this town that we were supposed to be at um, at precisely the time that we were planning to be out in the, out in the waves. And somewhere between, I forget the precise death count, but it was somewhere between six and 700 people um, died in that tsunami. Uh, And, and a lot of them, uh, were people who for various reasons were out in the water or right on the coast because they were the ones who had the hardest time getting away. And so I realized uh, that the likelihood that had we made it to the beach, the likelihood that we would have been part of that death toll was actually decently high. Um, and and I think that that forced me to reckon in a really interesting way with the question of what it looks like to to go on living once you've passed a point where you realize that you could have died, and once you begin to feel like every part of your life moving forward is sort of like, it's just gravy. It's just a bonus beyond what, like, God didn't have to give me this part. He could have just, like, ended the story right then. Um, uh, And it it reminded me of a a book that I had grown up loving uh, where there are these, the, the, the two lead characters get, like, miraculously saved from death. Um, and then they live forever, but because they've been saved from death, what they do is they just wander around from place to place helping people, um, and so, and they become sort of like these angelic figures, and it's like their lives are no longer about them because the lives that they had been going to live before they died, it was like, well, that life is over, and here's your new life where you're doing something different instead. Um, and I remember having a conversation with with God where I think in, in sort of a similar way, he said, well now you're the life you would have done is over um so welcome to the new life which is no longer about you um in which uh the whole ordering of your of your and purpose is towards something other than your own happiness your own achievement your own uh comfort um and and it seems to me that 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 kind of conversation with god the (laughs) The idea of saying, like, ah, oh, my, my former life is over uh, is actually very much, like, that's very much part of the the idea of following Jesus to begin with. Um, uh, uh, Jesus says, like, you know, if anybody wants to come after me, like, take up your cross and follow me. Like, come and die. You know, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. Um, there's a reason that we signify uh the The beginning of our following Jesus with baptism, because it's a symbolic death, you know, going under the water is a symbol of dying. Coming up from the water is a symbol of being raised into a new life, and that new life is by definition a life that's no longer about us, a life that's no longer about the things that we would have done uh, had our lives still belonged to us. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think that was a, that was a significant moment for me, um, not that I, not that I didn't believe those things to be true theologically prior to that experience. Um, nor do I perfectly live them out now after that experience. Um, and yet, there was something uh, really beautifully concretizing, really, really visible, uh, something I could cling to uh, in a very tangible way about noting that experience and saying, "I think there's something." true here that I need to claim about the nature of my obedience to Jesus.
0: Yeah, that seems to be a very clear cut transition in your life um, for the Lord to do uh, such thing like that um, and be able to, you know, save you in that kind of way. Uh, it's miraculous, really. Um, but I think uh, something really interesting. So you, you lived uh, kind of your whole life without ever dabbling into the LGBTQ community at all was that not something that you ever just like dipped your foot in? Like you didn't have any sexual experiences, um, doing that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, as far as LGBTQ community, like I've got loads, loads of friends, uh, and you know, depending on how you want to define your terms, I, I would describe myself with the word gay. And so in that sense, if by LGBTQ community, you meet all the people who would describe themselves as gay, like I'm part of the community. Um, I also—and just a just as a side note, um, I recognize that some people find terms like gay lifestyle helpful uh, to, to describe, like, a particular expression of sexuality. Um, for me, it's not a term that I found helpful, I guess because I do describe myself with the word gay, and I'm like, I have a lifestyle. It's just not the lifestyle you might be expecting if you say gay lifestyle. Like, my gay lifestyle, I just bake a lot of granola, you know? Uh, so, anyway, uh, but— I yeah i, I think, think the though the one
0: i'm uh trying to describe so when i say gay lifestyle i i mean someone who's fully devoted to that uh not someone who is uh um not trying to engage in their uh sexual uh both same-sex attraction because um, i think like most people that are in, in in uh involved in lgbtq communities they are engaged in their uh, same-sex attraction so for you you're not engaged in that and you haven't been engaged in that or have you been engaged
1: yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, accommodating just sort of the 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 slight language difference between us, which is, you know, I love yeah. you. Go last. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've uh, I've never I've never pursued sexual activity with anybody, um, same sex, opposite sex. Uh, it's it's not been part of my life. Uh, which, again, as as we addressed earlier, uh, doesn't mean that I've you know just like never never struggled in terms of like uh, sexual obedience to Jesus. Because uh, certainly, you know, my, uh, my trysts with gay pornography were not like me really winning with Jesus. Um, but yeah, as as far as as far as uh, sexual activities concerned, that hasn't been part of my story.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting because I think for me, um, I, I I wish you know that I hadn't made the decisions that I I did make uh, growing up. I was exposed mm-hmm. uh, sex. Uh, well, I was exposed to a lot of sexual stuff early on, like well, when I was 18 years old. And um and then from there there's been a lot of sexual brokenness in my in, in my life because of those decisions that I make. Because once you once you deep dive into that kind of stuff, it's something it's it's like an there's not a lot of undoing what you've done unless of course the Lord does something miraculous and um he just like wipes your memory of all that stuff or gives you a newfound purity. Uh he might, he might not. Um, but yeah, I wanted to know uh just for our viewers, because I think there's differences in our stories in that type of way too. Which is which is interesting to me uh, that the contrast between two people who are following Christ, one who has totally lived that, um, had really explored all of that in its fullness, um, and then another person that has um, like really abstained and and really uh, walked with the Lord for the majority um, of his life and 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 decided for himself that this is not something he wanted to do. Um, and I think that's really admirable. I, I really do. Um, just because like I said, it produced a lot of sexual brokenness in my life. Um, that hopefully <laughs> you will never have to go through. I wouldn't want that on anybody. Um, but yeah, so and 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 you said that when you started writing single uh, gay Christian, right? Um wanna make sure I got the title right. <laughs> single gay Christian. Um, that it was kind of like a, a a it was supposed to be a novel that you wanted to 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 write that was about something else different, but you were kind of stuck on writer's block and you decided that you were just gonna write out whatever thoughts were on your on your mind. Can you talk to me a little bit about the beginning processes of of writing your book and why you decided to do that?
1: Yeah. You know, when I when I started writing, like you said, I was trying I was trying to write something else altogether. I had very different ambitions for that summer. And uh I was I was so convinced at at that season of my life. I was really, really convinced that I wanted to—I wanted to die without anybody knowing that I was gay or attracted to the same sex or whatever you want to call it. Um, as as a side note, although note just sort of uh, an interesting thing in terms that you were mentioning some of the differences between our stories, um, I've noticed that often um, people who have uh, had a part of their story where they've been more sexually active with the same sex um, and then come to convictions around following Jesus that they that they want to be celibate or go in a different direction, um, often those folks are more likely to not use the term gay to describe their ongoing experience of attraction. Um, and folks like myself who are like, i ah, never had sex, um, uh, are sometimes more likely, I think, to self-describe as gay, um, uh, maybe maybe as a way of signifying that we're finally beginning to talk about something that until very recently we've just been super ashamed to talk about. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's interesting specific. how like, the how the choice of language and a shift away or a shift to language can sort of signify different things in different people's stories i think is really
0: interesting yeah Uh, because you know so so a person who's like really lived the fullness of that out um and wants to distance them themselves away from that and and create because people know you as like that becomes your whole identity at one point mm -hmm. and so it's like oh you know you're you're gay you're gay you're gay you're gay gay so then when you come to follow jesus it's like oh, are you not gay anymore? And there's there's no way to like kind of like differentiate, okay, this was old Sam that used to practice and all those types of things. I'm no longer interested in a boyfriend. I'm no longer interested in a, ma- in a marriage with a man. I'm no longer dating a man. There's no other way to like, like how how do I distance myself from that identity? in the best way is to be like, yeah, you know what, in your terms of definition, how you were labeling me before, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not gay anymore because gay to you means that you're actively practicing in a sexual relationship with a man. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, that's the best way, but I had like, you know, maybe you're familiar Peter, uh, Volk on, on my, yeah. on my podcast as well. And he likes to identify himself as, uh, as a gay Christian as well. Um, uh, to me, I think, I think language is just a form of communication. So, I mean, there's what, what it is. And, uh, and we all communicate differently on how are saying those types of things. But in the end, we're all kind of saying the same thing. I think I also grew up Pentecostal. And so uh, I hold to like the belief of like um, our words have significant power, significant meaning. Oh, sure. And so if I'm like labeling myself as whatever it is, whether it's label, uh, whether it's gay or whether it's, um, I don't know, whatever particular thing floats your boat, um, that I will become that thing and it will continue to follow me around. And and so for me, I think that's why the only label I would want to take on is what the Bible labels me as, which is a, a child of God. And you know, some people come into agreement with that. Some people don't. Some people are like, I don't, I don't really hold to that belief that you know my, the words that I say are, are all that powerful, are creating any type of reality in my life. Um, and 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 some people do. So I just like I like the differences in both. I'm not like I'm like, oh, you're heretic! How dare you say that you're a gay Christian? I uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> like it's like you know, some people have different convictions over different things, and and that's entirely up to them. And so I'm not a big stickler when it comes to that, but there <laughs> definitely are people and i had to have a whole podcast with peter on it <laughs> so um but yeah uh we were saying um the previous question
1: oh yeah yeah yeah. So, so back to back to the story so so anyway um i would yeah my plan was that i was gonna i was gonna die and nobody was gonna know that i was gay which obviously at this point in my life has worked out very well for me um but um i i was so I was so convinced that that needed to be the way that my life played out, Uh, that if people knew about my experience of sexuality, that couldn't possibly be good or okay, and that 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 could only be a bad thing. Um, And so when I uh, when I wound up wrestling with this bad writer's block and uh, my agent was like, maybe you should just try to, like, write things down in a blank Word document and just, you know, write whatever comes out of you and nobody ever has to read it. I was like, that's great advice, I'll do that. Uh, and so that's what I did. And so I started writing down all of these things that I'd been processing about my experience of sexuality, but had been too scared to say out loud. And I I wrote and wrote and wrote, and then eventually I looked at it and I was like, oh no, I think I wrote a book. Um now I had this book and I was like, I don't want anybody to know that I'm gay. So I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. Uh, and and that launched a, a season of wrestling through what I what I should do with it if I, if I should do anything at all. Um, yeah, the the question of whether whether the, the best thing you can do if if your if your experience of the world if your history doesn't include um, sort of a biographical season when you when you have been engaged in same-sex sexual activity, um, uh, is there is there any need to or value in acknowledging that that. Uh, that experience of attraction is still part of your life um, was, I think, something that I really wrestled with. Um, uh, I
0: mean, I think it's, I think it's super important um, just to talk uh, about the things that we're experiencing on a day to day basis. I think sure. that's that's a part of discipleship. So to me, that would be something that would be super important, whether it's sexuality or whether it's the want to to steal or whether it's the the compulsive activity of wanting to lie um you know any type of temptations that we're feeling it's it's the reality of our lives and it's something that we should be shared in the church not guilted not shamed for um because we're we're all different humans and we're all going to have those different temptations and uh those different inclinations and um and and if if it's not talked about it can be really harmful and i think that that is um maybe a little bit part of your experience is like man i like i can't imagine if uh for my whole life, I didn't tell anyone about the same sex attraction that I had. That was such a hold on me in middle school. I was so scared, so fearful of my parents finding out, my friends finding out. Um, I I didn't ever want to get drunk because I was like, oh my gosh, it's going to come out when I get drunk. And I like, you know, it was like, I always have to be thinking about this thing in the back of my mind and how, sure. I don't know how different of a person I would have been if I, if I didn't come out of the closet. Soon. Yeah. So, um, yeah. at, at that young age, um, how much stuff I would have kept inside of me, um, that I would have felt like is so, uh, just shameful. And, and that does something, you know, to you as an individual. I think, I think, uh, this is like my favorite quote from Shrek, <laughs> uh which is a better out than in (laughs) that i always say uh but yeah better out than in like oh my gosh like anything man and and i think you know i i'm very thankful for our generation that is a very open generation um because we talk about anything even for example uh i know this is really looked down upon but uh people who are really struggling with um attraction towards children you know even pedophilia um, where people are saying, uh, like they're coming out as open to say, like I am struggling in this. I know this is wrong, and I never want to practice this. And and I'm coming out to receive help, to say I need help in this area. Um, I think previous generations too would probably have that person killed or stoned, you know. And um and I think being more open about some of these things that we label as, oh my gosh, that's just horrendous, you know, even murderous thoughts or you know whatever it is um people need help for those types of things how how will they ever receive help for what they're experiencing if they're not open about it so um yeah i I think that's super important i i I think even when going through discipleship i i I really highly recommend people just be like just be open you know there's no judgment there's no shame Uh, but of course it's increasingly difficult for um for some people it's like an onion you know they they packed on layers and layers and layers that it's like being open is like maybe a little bit of a layer. But I don't... speaking
1: of Shrek quotes, not everybody likes onions. Cakes, everybody loves cakes. Cakes have layers.
0: I love <laughs> a, I love Shrek. <laughs> but yes, continue uh, about being transparent and open uh, with people through this book.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to echo what you said, I think uh, now that now that I am out. Uh, I think I've found that there was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of shame that accrued around my experience while I was keeping a secret. Um, and there's, there's been a lot of healing around that experience of shame. Um, there's been, there's been a lot more opportunity to think hopefully about the good things that I am called to say yes to as a follower of Jesus, instead of just spending my entire Christian life being like, no, no, no crap. I did it. No, no, no crap. I didn't get it. No, no, you know, just like, yeah. Um, yeah there's, there there's, there's something I think really fruitful about naming the things that we're experiencing, not just so that we know how to get the support that we need to to respond well to our experience of temptation, but also so that we can think well with people about what it looks like to sort of move forward in following Jesus well. Um, so, so yeah, so in in the end, I mean, uh, obviously the the unsurprising punchline of the story is that I did decide to publish the book. Um, and I came out with the book. So this, is, this was a weird experience that I don't recommend to anyone looking for tips on coming out. Um, I had written this book, uh, and when it became available for pre-order on Amazon, I took the Amazon link and I posted it to Facebook. And I wrote, Dear friends, I'm delighted to announce that I have a book coming out. Also, here are a few other things you should know of right and like the title of the book is like single gay christian um and the book has like a picture of half my face on the cover and so it was just very very unavoidable uh i bet
0: every friend family sent you a message that day and was like what is going on sweet? are you okay are you still in the faith like do you you still love baby jesus you know
1: (laughs) oh man i uh i had yeah i mean before i did that i had I had written out a list of about a hundred people that I felt like I needed to communicate with before I did that. Um, so I'd sent a lot of emails and had a lot of conversations that, uh, so the people I was closest with, I'd already talked to. Um, but yes, all the other people I knew, um, there was quite, quite the conversation was sparked and it was a time was had by all. Um, and some of those conversations were really, really beautiful and some were really, really hard and, um, in and in a couple cases amounted to that ended up being kind of the end of our relationship, which was really heartbreaking. Um, but I think uh, overall, uh, that that experience, it, it moved me um, away from feeling like I needed to control the narrative about my own life, which I think was a thing I'd been really tempted to do up to that point to try to make sure that I was really, really sure, not just that I was following Jesus, but that everybody who knew me thought I was following Jesus. Um, And I think at times, my idolatry of people's opinions of me became more important to me than the actual pursuit of Jesus. And so there was something really beautiful about the experience of coming out in the sense that it forced me to let go of my ability to control people's perceptions of whether or not I was following Jesus correctly. Uh, and, And that turned out, to create opportunity for me to actually follow Jesus more. Uh, and so for that, I'm tremendously grateful.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely share that with you. Um, I Luckily for me, coming out at such a young age, um, it came with its difficulties, which is just you better not care what anyone thinks about you because everyone is going to have an opinion about you. And all those opinions coming at a young age, I had to process that. So by the time I was an adult, I was like, I really don't Give a ish about what you think about me. Like I was so uh just I don't I don't care, you know, because I had already been accustomed to since middle school, through high school, through my adult life, um receiving opinions from people. And so when I did start following Christ, I was like, I do not care if you think that I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Like that is beyond me. Uh, but one thing for sure I did want to do um in terms of caring about what people thought was uh, making sure that I, I was helping people who were struggling in the same area, in that area. But I have prepared a bunch of questions for you, which we will not be able to get into in this podcast, so maybe we'll be able to do a part two. But just before um, before you actually go and before we end out uh, the podcast, um, what one of the main questions I did want to ask you was, since you do identify as, like let's say, single gay Christian, um what what do you think about believers who also identify as, as as gay but are unrepentant of sexual sin? Let's say for example they are pursuing a, a male male relationship or a female to female relationship. Um how what's your approach to that? Do you fellowship with them? Do you not fellowship with them? Do you treat them differently? Like what what do you do in those types of situations?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um I think the the first thing I I would well I, there were, there are were a couple questions I would want to ask up front, um, uh, and and one is like what when we say unrepentant, I think th- I think there's a significant difference, um, between people who uh have the conviction that what they're doing is wrong and they're like, but I'm doing it anyway and I'm not repenting of it, uh, and people who uh who have have reached a conviction that they they don't think what they're doing is wrong. Um, And and maybe, I mean, maybe another example that also involves uh, sexual sin, um, but is, uh, you know, is not this topic and maybe can give some perspective is convictions around uh, remarriage after divorce. Um, So I'm somebody who's remarkably conservative on questions. Well, by Protestant standard, I would fit in really well with the Catholic. But on, on the on like when I read scripture and I see what scripture seems to say about remarriage, I'm like, I think that's Uh, almost never the the best option. In fact, I'm I'm somebody who's like, I think unless the former spouse has passed, I don't think that's the best for you as a follower of Jesus. Um, And I am in the minority among Protestants in that conviction, um, which means that I need to wrestle with what do I do when I meet these these lovely people who are deeply seeking to follow Jesus um, and who yet have said uh yeah, I I don't see what you see it in the Bible, and so I don't feel the need to repent of the thing that I'm doing because I don't see this as being a thing that needs repentance. Um, and so when I wrestle with how to engage in that relationship, um, the the thing that I want to say is, um, is there a possibility? Is there room for both you and me to say? I want to be so obedient to Jesus. I want to be so willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads, no matter how costly it is, that I'm open to the possibility that I could be wrong, um, that I'm open to the possibility that Jesus might want to do even more things in my life, inconvenience me even more, call me to things that don't even feel possible or cognizable at this point, um, uh if, if somebody if somebody says like, yeah, that's the posture I have toward Jesus, then I'm like, good. Let, let's let's keep talking about our mutual desire to follow Jesus then we can keep wrestling together with the ways that both of us might be wrong. Um, but if somebody says, you know, I'm not really interested in a Jesus who actually has a say over that part of my life, um, then that to me is the bigger issue. I'm less concerned about their convictions about sexual ethics per se and more concerned about the fact that, if they have a Jesus who doesn't have permission to tell them to do certain things, then maybe that's not the real Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, so so i I think, um, what, yeah, when I have the privilege of being in community with all kinds of people who disagree with me about all kinds of things, um, uh, the i I hope that I hope that all of us can have a posture of humility toward one another. um and I hope that we can all also eagerly invite one another to consider like there may yet be more that that jesus is inviting you into um but i think the best way that i can make that invitation is from a place of relationship uh so um yeah i i i tend to be in relationship with all kinds of people um people who are following jesus and people who are not following jesus people who maybe think they're following jesus and i have questions about whether they're following him effectively or not and People who think that I'm not really following Jesus correctly, even though it's painful for me to hang out with them because they always want to be like, Coles, you're doing it wrong. Jesus actually doesn't like you. You know, like all of the, I want to be in relationship with all of those people, even the relationships that are that are painful and challenging. That's actually
0: an incredible answer. And um, I want to give you a round of applause for that. <laughs> uh, you can tell you're a very smart guy. Um, but I'm very, I'm, I'm super like black and white. I just like give my opinion and people get hurt and I'm like, okay, <laughs> but, uh, thank God for more people like you who are are very sensitive and, um, can communicate more better than I can. And some other people can, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. I think that that, that was a beautiful, uh, way of saying, uh, of that. And I, and I, and I, I love to kind of point out those double standards as well. In my ministry, I do that. When people ask me questions like "Should I go to a gay marriage?" I would say, "Well, have you been to a heterosexual marriage that doesn't have Jesus in the center?" You know, and I'll just <laughs> point out those du- those double standards uh, because I think we should, you know, um, because how can we address one and not address the other? We should address all of them and then see if we can come to a point of of purity in, in what Jesus thinks about those topics yeah. or things. But um, thank you so much, Greg, for just coming on. I want to be able to point people to your two books. So you have um, Single gay Christian and then you have No Longer Strangers. What is No Longer Strangers about? Can you give a brief summarization of that?
1: Yeah, uh, the subtitle of No Longer Strangers is Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. Uh, and, And that's basically what it's about is how we find belonging as followers of Jesus and specifically how we wrestle with the reality that we really never quite belong in the world as followers of Jesus, that there's always a kind of homelessness, right? There's a, there's a guy who's talking to Jesus in one of the Gospels, and he's like, hey, like, I want to follow you, Jesus. And and Jesus gives him this very heartening recruitment speech. He's like, well, foxes have, uh, you know, dads, and, like, birds here have nests, but, like, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Basically, it's this invitation, like, if you want to follow me, cool, like, get ready to be permanently homeless. Um and so I think there is there is a kind of uh, challenge in the invitation to follow Jesus that says, like, you may always feel out of place. You may always feel like you don't belong. And yet at the same time, you may also find this incredible belonging that's so much better than anything that you could have dreamed. That actually, if you're following Jesus, the kind of belonging he wants to invite you in is a kind of belonging that's way better and way more flourishing and way more joyful than the kind of thing you would have dreamed up for yourself. Um, So No Longer Strangers is me wrestling through some of those ideas and telling some stories from my own life and growing up in Indonesia and thinking, yeah. Um, So that's that's the book. It's fun. I like it. That's that sounds great. Um,
0: I think uh, I think that would be a huge help to so many people, especially those who, who do who do struggle with same sex attraction um, and are facing that in their uh, Christian walk. So um, once again, thank you so much, Greg. How can people find you? You you have a website, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gregcoles.com or Gregorycoles.com. They'll both take you to the same place. <laughs> you got both. <laughs> I I used to have just Gregcoles.com, and then my agent was like, "You got to hop on that Gregorycoles.com too." Um and here we are. <laughs> and Here we are. But yeah, oh. or you can find me on social media though I'm not terribly active on social media or you can yeah, just read my books. And if you I had a touch go to my website and send me a contact form and that just sends me an email.
0: Yeah, I had a a difficulty trying to find you on social media cuz when I found your book, I actually guys I found his book at a library and I was just visiting and um and I saw it on the shelf and I was like, what is this? Single get Christian. I was like, oh, let me read this and I was like, oh man, I got to Find this guy. I went on social media trying to find your profile. It was very difficult, and then um, and then I was able to find it somehow. So I'm glad we connected. But uh, guys, yeah, go ahead and check out his website, uh, Gregorycoles.com, and and purchase uh, some of his books. You know, something that I I think is super important as Christians nowadays is that uh, actually the other day I was on Amazon and I was looking up books that are kind of uh I don't, I don't know how to say this. Maybe you know how to say this, but a pro. Biblical traditional marriage, I guess, or mm-hmm. lifestyle. Or I don't. How would you say something like that?
1: Uh, books that hold a historic Christian sexual ethic.
0: Yes, perfect. <laughs> and and I couldn't I couldn't find any. Like it was all actually like uh like pro gay. Like live the life that you want to live. Um, do whatever sexually you want to do. Um, that were Christian books. And I was like, oh man, this is kind of strange because five years ago that wasn't the case. Uh, but now it's everywhere on Amazon. I can't find any resources. And so I think to have someone like you uh, speaking uh, uh, over this topic in such a graceful way is is super helpful. And um, and I hope you get to write more books on this so you can fill up that Amazon list with some of your book. Um, but yeah, guys, go and purchase. And thank you, everybody, for listening to the podcast. Don't forget that we have an online Discord as well. And so if you're wanting to find community or just resources uh, to walking this Christian walk um, online with somebody else, um, we have that online Discord, and that's all in my link tree and my resources. And uh, check us out for our next episode, which will probably come in a week or every other week, so I've decided. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye!